When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, Brandon Harvey here. Before we get started, I just wanted to give a shout out to the sponsor of this week's episode, Who Gives a Crap? No, really though, that's the name of the company, Who Gives a Crap? Who Gives a Crap began when its Australian founders learned that 2.3 billion people across the world don't have access to a toilet. That's roughly 40% of the global population and means that around 289,000 children under five die every day from diarrheal diseases caused by poor water and sanitation. So they did what anyone would do in this situation and started a toilet paper company. Yes, that's what they did. Not only do they make all of their products with environmentally friendly materials, but they also donate 50% of their profits to help build toilets and improve sanitation in the developing world. Who Gives a Crap is offering Sounds Good's listeners $10 off their first order with the promo code SOUNDSGOOD. To get toilet paper delivered to your door, make a difference in the world, and support this podcast, just go to whogivesacrap.org slash soundsgood and use the discount code soundsgood. All one word. One more time, that is whogivesacrap.org slash soundsgood with the discount code soundsgood. Who gives a crap? Good for your bum, great for the world. All right, now here comes the show. have a confession to make. The idea that some people in the world are facing a problem and do not want a solution from me is really challenging. It's just not how my head or my heart work. It's really hard for me to recognize something difficult is happening to me or around me and not actively work at making this problem go away through brainstorming possible solutions or taking action. However, at the same time, I am drawn toward the people in my life who are not afraid of sitting in something that is broken and hard and allowing themselves to feel that heartbreaking emotion all the way through with all the depth that's required. Anjali Pinto, my guest on the podcast today, is one of those people who does this incredibly well, and she's done so publicly. You see, Anjali is a professional photographer, artist, and writer who met her husband, Jacob, when she was young. They met on Instagram, in fact. They fell in love and shared their beautiful story consistently with their communities online. Jacob died suddenly at the age of 30, out of the blue and with no warning. What's unique about Anjali's story is that she didn't turn inward after Jacob's death. She turned to Instagram and she publicly grieved, allowing people to see the full process of that grief. Anjali garnered the attention of more than 50,000 followers, up from 80,000 or so when she started. After a year of grieving on Instagram, she hosted an art show dedicated to memorializing the life of Jacob that made a profound impact on its viewers. I'm Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good. This is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. Anjali is an incredible human being, and her story is raw, hopefully giving others the same freedom to live into their story of loss and grief. 
Before we get into it, I do want to say that Anjali does talk about the death of Jacob. And if that's not something you want to hear, feel free to skip this episode. The conversation is hopeful and I'm excited about it. So let's just jump straight into the conversation. Anjali, I want to know how you got started as a photographer because I I love your food work and I love your lifestyle work. I think that you capture life so beautifully and it, it I can tell that you've been a photographer for a long time, but how long has it been? When did you get started? I actually was just telling this story to a bunch of high schoolers today. No way. Um, yeah, I picked up a camera when I was around 15 or 16. My dad um, bought his first digital camera. And he didn't really know how to use it. And I was like, let me just take this for a couple weeks and figure it out for you. And then I'll give you a lesson. And it turned out that I just basically commandeered the camera completely. And I would, I would like give it back to him when there was like an event that he needed, you know, to cover for family birthday or whatever. Um, But yeah, I just fell in love with it when I was a teenager. Wow. Did you have anything that you were like, Like, so I got a camera when I was 16 in my photography class, but for me, I was really driven by, uh, seeing photos online and I was like, I'm inspired to recreate these. Did you have anything in you that was like driving that love for photography? I was a big scene kid and I went to shows and, um, I wanted to take pictures of my friends and bands and, document my personal style and its evolution and just basically create the best live journal that anyone had ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) And did you do that? Did you create the best um, one anybody's ever seen? (laughs) No, uh, it was very, very, um, just like my Instagram is now essentially pouring really personal information onto the internet and documenting my day-to-day life. Really? So yeah, I've been doing that since I was a teenager. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. What what do you think your thought process was on choosing to be vulnerable online, you know, even as a teenager? Well, part of it was that I didn't know better. <laughs> <laughs> to be perfectly honest, um I didn't really foresee any consequences of being honest online, um which did get me into a little bit of trouble occasionally. But I think I just have a natural tendency to be an open person. And I was an optimist then and still am now. So a lot of it wasn't really very gut wrenching. It was like, Ooh, I'm scared about what college to go to. And does anyone want to go to Chicago with me to go see this show? (laughs) Um, So it was, it was all pretty innocent, I'd say. But at that time, you know, that's probably still, you know, choosing to put out more than, the average high schooler is, you know, like it, I, I, I don't know. I feel like in high school, we all kind of put up a little bit of a facade and to at least share some of your emotions and feelings is a big deal. Yeah. I, I don't know if I was just naturally inclined to have this sort of visual literacy, but I have always associated my thoughts with images and vice versa. I wasn't ever really prompted to like write long entries in a journal even though I had a lot of things that I wanted to say, it was through the photos that I was able to express myself. And then I could kind of write small captions that gave context to the photos, but I felt like the photos better represented my emotions and my experiences. That's really interesting. I, I feel like I resonate with that a lot. I've never been somebody who 
journals or, or at least, I mean, I've started a lot of journals. I've got so many moleskins with like the first 10 pages filled out, but I've never put words to it like that. And I think, I, I don't know. I feel like I really connect with that. And that's cool that this opportunity to share words and photos kind of came along at the same time that you were becoming a photographer. What kind of came next for you in the world of photography? Um, well, I was in the international baccalaureate program at my school, but there was no um, advanced art courses. So I signed up for community college. I did night classes with adults while I was in high school. So I learned darkroom stuff and um, had my first like photo assignments when I was 17 and 18. That I credit a lot to my parents just being supportive and encouraging me that it could be a career if I was passionate about it. And I think they saw that I had some talent or natural inclination for it. And then I went to school for photojournalism. I was really excited about the opportunity to potentially work for a magazine and travel for a living and take pictures of people and tell their stories. So that's what I was, I have been wanting to do since I was an adolescent, essentially. And I love that you've gotten to just continue steering down that path because it's not, I don't feel like everybody necessarily has that kind of clarity with what they want to do in the future. No, no. My siblings and I talk about that all the time because all three of us, even though we're in very different paths, all felt this like compulsion to do what we loved from a young age. Wow. What were your parents like then? How did What was kind of fostering that for all of you? I think just a really supportive and loving and encouraging home life. My dad is a psychiatrist and my mom was a social worker. My father's from India and my mother is white and grew up in Peoria, Illinois. So uh, I don't know. I, I We definitely had a different family than a lot of my peers. We had this kind of mentality that my dad brought to the table, which is like schooling is a, is a necessary and you will get straight A's no matter what because you're capable and I'm not going to settle for anything less. <laughs> so that's just like what you do in India. It's very competitive and there's no, there's no excuse you know, good enough for a parent <laughs> with that mentality. So <laughs> it was just like, work hard, do what you love, and hopefully things will fall into place for you. And and they did. They did. Yeah. I mean, I still definitely have times where I'm like, maybe I should just go back to school and become a nurse. Or, you know, it, it kind of feels like, am I just going to be self-employed or like, kind of floating for the rest of my life. It feels weird. But at the same time, I'm doing what I love and I'm able to make a living. And, you know, I guess we all just have to pinch ourselves in this position to be like, wow, it's really happening. Yeah. I fully resonate with that idea of like, oh my gosh, am, am I going to work for myself forever? You know, is what does the future look like? But I think there's something kind of exciting about that. And the nice thing is you really can, you know, shift and change when you need to, you know, I don't think that door ever closes. I want to hear about uh, when Jacob came into the picture. Yeah. At what point did you meet Jacob? What's kind of the beginning of your love story? Jacob and I met through Instagram in 2012 before there was direct messaging or an explore page or anything. <laughs> My friend Paul Octavius 
I love Paul. Oh my gosh. He's the best. Um, Yeah. So Paul posted a portrait of me on my birthday, wishing me a happy birthday. And of course you get this like bump of random followers. Of course. Because Paul was like the original (laughs) famous person. Yeah. But one of them was Jacob and he would leave these little quips on my comment section, you know, always just showing that he was paying attention. And was he like intentionally flirting? You think? It wasn't like overt flirting. It was just like, hey, I notice you, you know? And the funny thing is, after he died, I met a bunch of his like Instagram friends because they emailed me and reached out to offer condolences. And it was like, he made people feel that way online, like over long periods of time. Like it wasn't necessarily flirtatious. He was just really good at connecting with people and staying in touch and like being consistent. And you feel like you know the person after a while, you know, when you see that much of their life unfold. Truly. That really surprised me that, you know, someone who had never met him could feel his loss uh, just because they were like friends through the comment section of Instagram. Uh, I just got goosebumps thinking about that because I've, I've made some of my best friends through Instagram, which is wild, you know, because I jumped on Instagram in those early days back in 2011, 2012 as well. And, you know, I, I don't know if people are still having that experience in 2018, but I know that I had that same experience back in 2012, 2013. And I still feel so deeply connected with so many of those people who just chose to be intentional. And I think it takes a special kind of person to choose to be intentional with people in that context too. Yeah. I think anyone who had the opportunity to hang out with Jacob, you wouldn't ever think that's a person who spends a lot of time on their phone or like buried in their device because he was so present and so good at making people around him feel cool and special. And he was just such a fun loving person and goofy. Um, But he really was able to translate that into his online personality in a way that was just so genuine and easy to love. So Paul and I joked like, okay, if if this Jacob underscore Johnson character is gay, you can have him. And if he's straight, I get him. <laughs> <laughs> so like I really couldn't That's tell amazing. from his, <laughs> couldn't tell from his profile <laughs> what he was into. Um and we like just talked back and forth for a little while and then decided to meet up for a beer and it was in May of 2012. And basically I consider our dating anniversary June 1st. Cause once we met, it was just, we were like inseparable and we spent that whole summer, you know, biking around Chicago and going to concerts and getting to know each other and introducing each other to each other's friends. And it was just such a magical time. And I had really never met a, 20 something heterosexual man who was so determined to love and open hearted and free with, you know, his desires to be in a committed relationship. I never like had to chase him down. That's incredible. Yeah. (laughs) You know, he was the one like, that's remarkable that he was in such a healthy place to be there. It was, it was like, he had come out of a long relationship from college and they had been living together and, you know, that force of expectations to be married and take the next steps was upon them. And he was really unhappy and 
didn't know how to get out. And once he finally, you know, made the move, he <laughs> had this tiny apartment in a basement of a big building in Chicago. And that's where I met him. He was living in what we call the rat den. (laughs) That's a terrible name for a place to live. That's awful. A rat ate through the drywall behind his toilet and was in his apartment when he got home. Um, And I was like, I can never sleep there. I can never sleep there again. (laughs) Yeah. So not long after that, he moved in with me and it kind of just all was very easy. I don't know that I will ever have a relationship like that again. And I'm so glad that I got to experience that with someone like him that was so considerate of the way his actions impacted me and also so unabashedly in tune with what he wanted. It was just a very um, electric feeling. That's really special. Like, that's beautiful. And you you guys got married how long after knowing each other? We had been dating three years, and I was 26, and he was 29. Great. Yeah. That's amazing. Where did you guys have the wedding, by the way? We had it in Chicago because um, I still have family abroad, so it's an easy place to fly into. And um, Jacob grew up in western Iowa, which is about an eight-hour drive from Chicago. Um, So it could kind of be like a city vacation for his family. Um, And yeah, I'm really glad we did it here. We made our whole life here together. So it felt like we're not going to our hometowns. We're bringing everyone to our home. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Our listeners already know this, but Jacob passed away Would you mind telling us a little bit about what that day was like? Sure. He died on New Year's Eve at home. So I have always been a person that prefers to spend that holiday inside or doing something very low-key. I'm incredibly grateful that it happened to be on a day where we had already planned to spend the day together. It was like any other day. We woke up. I ran to the gym. He ran errands. He came home. I made a big breakfast. We were like laughing and joking around in the apartment. I took a bath and he was on his phone in the other room. And I was like, man, I just miss him. Like, I'm going to call him into the bathroom. (laughs) I was like, Jacob. He's like, what? I'm like, come in here. So he like came in and sat next to me while I was in the tub. And he brought in a joint. (laughs) and We smoked this joint together. And it was just a really, like, sweet and kind of, like, celebratory, it's a holiday, we don't have anywhere to go, we don't have any plans tomorrow kind of day. We ended up doing some house projects, and then we were together in bed in the afternoon, and it was an incredibly intimate, regular, everyday moment. I woke up um, after a short nap, and rolled over and he wasn't in bed next to me, which surprised me. And it had gotten dark while I fell asleep. And that's always disorienting. So I walked into the hallway and I could see from the end of the hallway, looking down into the bathroom, that he was in the bathroom and he, I could only, you know, see his face, but it had looked like he had fainted. And I rushed to try to wake him up. And 
as soon as I touched him, you just know, like, I just knew that he wasn't there at all. And I tried to get him in a position to do CPR. I was looking for a pulse. I couldn't find a pulse. And so, you know, I gave him a little bit of CPR, but I knew that I needed to call 911. So I ran back to the room, grabbed my cell phone, put on clothes, and basically just waited for the medics to arrive. It took a little over seven minutes. And during that time, the the dispatcher was encouraging me to continue to do CPR. Medics arrived. And oddly enough, Jacob had had a an uncle who passed away the previous year. And I kind of had in my head that I knew, you know, if your brain's not being oxygenated for a certain amount of time, you're there's just no coming back. So as the medics were working on him, you know, it started to really become a reality that he was gone forever, even though I'm in a complete state of shock. And after about 30 or 40 minutes, they were going to transport him to the hospital. And I actually pulled out my phone and set it to record because I thought that the the lead medic was going to tell me that he was dead. And I wouldn't believe it later. So I needed to record it in case I had to like prove to someone else that this really happened. And that recording is just so eerie. It's just me panting and this medic saying with a lot of care in his voice, we've done everything we can. We're going to transport him to the hospital. And I was like, but the back staircase is wider. How are you going to carry him out the front? He was like, you know, the ambulance is right out front, so that's just the way we have to go. And the recording ends. And they're really not able to declare someone dead on the scene if they're not obviously dead or have been dead for a long time. And when I found him, he still, you know, had color in his face. He was still warm. And it must have been just a few minutes beforehand that he died. Um, because it wasn't until we got to the hospital, my sister met me there, thank God, that, you know, he started to truly look like a dead person. And that was just a whole nother incredibly disorienting experience. The ER doctor was very cold and not helpful. And it was sort of just matter of fact of like, I'm sorry to inform you that your husband's dead. And he was like, okay, so you have, you have as much time as you want with him now until the coroner arrives because he's so young and we don't know the cause of death and autopsy is required. And I was like, well, how long will that be? And he's like, it could be anywhere from an hour to four hours. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, I have four hours to sit with him and call his family and figure this out. And what felt like 20 minutes passed and the coroner arrives. So there's no like social worker or any type of like transitional care. It's just like I'm alone with him in an emergency room. My sister's on the phone in the hallway pacing, calling all of his relatives. And then the officials come essentially to take him away and remove him in a body bag. And I was home without him forever by 9 p.m. that night. 
I can't even imagine. I'm so sorry. And that, I mean, it's it's not like it's all, obviously it's all the worst, but that first night, that first 24 hours, that's got to be horrible. Your mind races to a thousand different directions. It's so bizarre. There's no way to grasp the permanence of it in those first few moments because it's like, no, five minutes ago, he was just talking to me. You know, an hour ago, we had been planning what we were going to eat for dinner. And now I am alone forever. Like, this isn't what was supposed to be our life. This isn't what we promised each other. And how can a perfectly healthy person just disappear from the planet? Like, it felt like voodoo. Someone had stuck a pin in his heart. And, you know, it didn't, it still doesn't really make any sense. There's no like known genetic link. There's no real signs that he was ill. It just happened. And I really don't think that there's any good way for a young person to die. It's just all awful. But having been exposed to so many tragedies through my work, it really is astonishing and somewhat comforting that we had those hours together beforehand to express our love and just be alone together because I still draw on that day you know if people ask me the worst day of my life it would not be the day that Jacob died because it was the last day I got to spend with him something powerful is that this isn't the first time that people are necessarily hearing you share this intimate and personal story. You've been really open about the full process. At what point did you share online for the first time what had happened to Jacob? You know, what were those first words that you posted to, you know, because all these people were following along with your love story and then one day everything changed. The very common response to death is to not be able to say this person died. It is so disorienting to speak those words at the beginning. And that's why we use the phrase passed away or no longer with us, because the idea of someone dying is so foreign. The first day after he died, it felt like, oh my God, everyone's home on a holiday. It's the first day of the year. And None of us slept. So we started making phone calls at like seven or eight in the morning. And I wanted to tell my close friends myself, but it was really, really difficult to mutter those words. And I had a lot of support from my family who helped me inform people. But then it sort of came time in the afternoon to tell a wider net. And especially because we were considering having a memorial in just a couple days after he died because it was a holiday and people were off work. We just kind of formulated a little write-up that we could post on social media to let people know what had happened. The first post that I made was essentially just, Jacob's no longer with me. The pain, shock, and grief are immeasurable. But thank you to everyone who's already offered their support. And I think for everyone that was following me that wasn't a close friend and wouldn't have found out directly, that post was 
so jarring and unbelievable that it, I mean, at least in the photo community, it definitely spread like wildfire. It was like, you know, people were calling each other, like, did this really happen? What's going on? And some days it still feels like that. (laughs) Like, did that really happen? How could that happen? And how was I able to even write or share anything? What do you think your thought process was again? You know, you, you talked earlier about choosing to be vulnerable on the internet growing up. And now you're confronted with the opportunity or the choice to potentially do that again. You know, beyond just an announcement communicating what happened, but, you know, just starting to share your grief publicly what was kind of your thought process in the beginning? My first reaction was to be transparent because I knew that I had a lot of people that cared about me that wanted to know what was going on with me and what I might be feeling. And I assumed that once people heard, they would be coming to my page to see any update, you know? Yeah. And Jacob and I were so public about our love and our life together and had so many thousands of photos that it just felt like everyone needs to see all of this. Like I can't keep this to myself and what other time am I going to have the freedom to just speak his praises nonstop? Everyone will understand if all I want to do is talk about him, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I just started talking about him and I felt like if I said nothing or turned inward that everyone around me would be frightened to talk about him or not want to bring him up and that it would make me too sad to bring back those memories to the surface. And I felt the opposite. Like that's the only thing that was on my mind 24 hours a day. So I wanted to invite other people in and make sure that he was remembered for more than just a person that died too young. What about for yourself? You know, you've been somebody who has, has shared these stories for more than a year and you've gotten a lot of attention for it. Are you ever afraid that people are going to see you or define you based on your heartbreak and, and, maybe not see you as a three-dimensional person beyond your grief? I have struggled with that a bit. I think it's like, I struggle with the idea that I'm inspiring people. It is hard to like go out in public and see people that I don't know. And they stop me to tell me how inspirational I am without acknowledging my loss. That it's like, I know you never knew Jacob and you don't really know me. And I do appreciate you reading along and finding some comfort or wisdom from my experience. But I just want the acknowledgement that it's from a tragedy. And this isn't like maybe a perfect analogy, but it really felt like I lost a part of myself and you would never go up to someone who had lost a limb and be like, wow, that's so inspirational. Like, I understand that I'm surviving something that you never want to go through. 
but death is a part of life. And I'm really just giving people a small glimpse into what it is like to lose someone close to you, which most people are fascinated with. It's so hard because nobody knows what to say unless they've made a mistake or they've been on the receiving end of those mistakes. But that doesn't make it any better feeling for you. You know, it's not like it's going to make it. You still need to hear those words that it's coming from a place of heartbreak and pain and loss. And yeah, I can't imagine just going to the grocery store and, and trying, you know, to pick out your meals for the week. And then all of a sudden your day shifts again. I never want to make people feel like they can't talk about it with me because that's the opposite of what I'm trying to do. I think in general, it's, you know, I had this experience recently where I met with several other people who have experienced loss and I was the only person at the table whose inclination was to turn outward and to be public and to share where the more natural and societal expectation is that you keep your grief inside and you mourn privately and sitting at the table with people who weren't able to have this network around them was so heartbreaking for me because I know exactly how much letting people in and talking about my feelings openly has helped me get to the point where I can now talk about Jacob's death without crying and it doesn't make it less painful, but it is it is a reality that I am comfortable speaking about openly because I've had so much practice. And it's never like the first time I'm in, examining these feelings with another person because I've thought through them all, written them down, shared them, found a photo for them. So it has definitely helped me process my own emotions and talking about my own experience. Tell me more about the responses that you got. You know, what have people been saying? Because it's wild, you know, if you look at how many comments you get, and I'm, you know, that's not even scratching the surface on emails and DMs, I'm sure. But you're getting, you know, some like a hundred comments on so many of these photos and you've been sharing, you've probably shared hundreds of photos so far. What are people saying? What are you connecting with? And what's been helpful to you? You know, the most common encouragement I get is to write a book. (laughs) And I kind of feel like, you guys, you're already reading it. Like, this is my book. (laughs) Do you want to pay for it? (laughs) Do you want to pay for my Instagram? Because it's free right now. (laughs) But I mean, what, what other memoir author do you get to give live feedback to? You know, that is like, I... Anyone who has taken away something from my story has the ability to reach me directly, which is such a unique way of living in the world right now, you know, that wouldn't have happened 100 years ago or 50 or 40 or 20. And I think it's really incredible that I have brought out acceptance of grief in a lot of people's lives, no matter what kind of loss that they've experienced. The most intense call for a response I got was um, when I was preparing for Jacob's show, I was like, I don't know who's going to come to this and I don't know who I'm going to meet and what they're going to say. And maybe some people will be too afraid to talk to me, but they want to see the work. And 
I wrote essentially like, what have these posts meant to you over the last year? Because for me, they were just a way of healing and exploring my own emotions. But what, what have they meant to you? And I was looking at these comments coming in and my eyes started to cross. I couldn't read them. Like it was so much text on my phone that I actually copied and pasted it, drug it into my notes and then printed it out. And it was 19 pages back in front. Wow. Back in front. It was unreal. Like I'm so moved that people would take the time to express themselves in that way and show support to a complete stranger. And maybe I don't feel like a stranger because I've put my life out there, but it really just brought me to tears because I just felt like, see, Jacob, (laughs) wouldn't you be so proud of me right now? Like I did my fucking best, tried to make something good come out of this. Like I could have just given up. It felt a lot of times like it would be easier to not try and to just distract myself with some other thoughts or move to a new apartment or just forget like the life that we tried to build together and start over. But instead I tried to harness the creativity and love and connection that he gave to me with other people. That's beautiful. And earlier you described yourself as an optimist. How would you say that you being an optimist has played into the way you've dealt with your grief? Because I know that optimism doesn't, it doesn't ignore what happened. It doesn't, it doesn't pretend that heartbreak doesn't exist and it, it doesn't wrap it up in a bow. No, it still continues to be really hard. It's like after a year of making those posts, I had to stop doing the daily practice because I felt like there was this expectation from me to continue to live publicly. And some of the things that I was dealing with out of respect for the other people it affected in my life, I couldn't continue to write about it. And I also felt like I had been generous enough for anyone else who might experience the loss of their partner. They could scroll back to the beginning and read it chronologically. You know, it's all still there. Um, But I needed a little bit of time to not have some epiphany at the end of the day, but to just live and exist. And some days are shitty and some days are good. But I don't feel incredibly optimistic about the future without him still it's it's hard to accept and for me right now especially in regards to love it just feels like I might never find everything that I had in one person again and I might never be able to give over myself and really truly need and want an individual that much because I know exactly how fragile it is. And even if you fall in love and you believe wholeheartedly you will have a future together, it doesn't guarantee that it will be easy or long or what you want. So I think I'm just more guarded in that sense. But it's also taught me that I can't really live for anyone else. I have to live for myself and try to do the best with what I have to make myself a happy person and find joy and connection in the world 
So that's what I've been trying to do. I think you've done an incredible job at that. And I think it's beautiful that you've been doing all that while just telling the truth about it. You know, you're not faking it. You're not telling people that it is what it isn't. You know, you're saying this is the raw truth. And is it hard to say out loud that you don't know if you'll ever find love like that again? Like, is it, is that a weird thing to say as somebody who self-describes as an optimist? Yeah, because I know that if someone in my life was telling me that I would encourage them to be hopeful and other widows that I've met, you know, I do try to tell them if anything, your successful relationship makes you a better candidate to have that kind of love again, because you know what it looks like and you know what it feels like and you wouldn't settle for less. (laughs) But, you know, I, from a young age, I've, I've just never really been a person who spends a lot of time alone and learning to like myself enough to spend several days alone has been so hard. And I know that it would break Jacob's heart to see me distraught still, you know, Um, especially after all the effort that I've put in to, to be better, to feel better. But the kind of love that we shared was just, all-encompassing, you know, and it does feel at times impossible to be myself again. Do you think your goal is to become yourself again, or do you think that your goal at this point is has kind of shifted to just find your new self, you know, after something so earth-shattering? I think at the core, I am the same person, the things that have changed, I was bound to learn through tragedy, whether it was Jacob dying or a parent dying or a sibling dying. I've learned a lot about what life looks like after loss. And I'm sure that that experience is going to inform the rest of my relationships. But I guess what I mean in finding myself is I just know that I'm a person that's meant to be partnered and I feel so much more nourished and whole when I'm able to take care of someone and be nurturing. And that's just a part of my life that I can't, I can't do alone. And I know that I just have to be patient and that the right person will come along, but uh, man, it is hard. And there's no sugarcoating that. <laughs> no, there isn't. What What have been the things you've done to take care of yourself, you know, offline over the last year plus? Um, first thing is therapy. I was not in counseling. I was not in counseling before Jacob died. Um, and I did put it off for about five months. I was really intimidated to have to go in and tell my story to someone who didn't know him at all. And especially since I had been writing every day, I was like, how am I going to tell this story in an hour? Like clearly. <laughs> and pay them takes... to, to let me tell yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. But being a naturally nurturing and um, available person in most of my friendships in my life, it's really important for me to have this one person that 
it's just one-sided and I'm not expected to bring any of their life or their trauma or their struggles home with me. I just get to talk about mine. I also found that any sort of goal to work towards helped me focus on smaller amounts of time rather than having to think about the future as this big ominous thing over my head. So getting writing assignments and photo assignments again has been helpful. And last summer I rode my bike across the state of Iowa in Jacob's honor. And wow, that's amazing. <laughs> it was How incredible. Was that? It was so much fun. I'm doing it again. It's this um, ride called Ragbri, the Registers Annual Great Ride Across Iowa. <laughs> it's a terrible acronym. <laughs> it's um, terrible. <laughs> but biking people know about Good. it. Ragbri. Um yeah, so you ride like 60 miles a day for a week. And I did that with his family. And Jacob's brother looks a lot like him. I can't tell you how special it was to be like riding and feeling like so depleted. And about half a mile ahead, I can see Tyler, Jacob's brother, standing at the side of the road with Jacob's bike in oh. hand, waiting for me. Oh, that's so sweet. To make sure I was okay. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's so special. I'm glad you get to do that again. Do you think you'll keep on doing it? I don't know. I mean, I'm not really, like, I didn't grow up with longstanding traditions. Like, a lot of people have, like, every year our family did this together. And I just, so to me, like, doing something two or three years in a row feels like, okay, I knocked this, like, tradition thing out. And on yeah, to the next thing. and like, Totally. It was meaningful to you. Mm-hmm. And so you did it. And then you can find something yeah. else. Yeah. And I, I like finding new experiences to explore. That's amazing. What are you excited about in the future? And it doesn't have to be in terms of, of anything with Jacob. Just like what are, what are some other things that you're, like, that you're pumped about right now? I just found this opportunity with a nonprofit in Chicago that I love called Embark. And I'm essentially going to be taking over their social media for May and interviewing students that have been helped by their programming and telling their individual stories, doing portraits and kind of uplifting the organization through photography and writing, which is essentially my dream job. That is perfect for you. Thank you. That's incredible. Congratulations. Thanks. And yeah, I didn't know where telling Jacob's story would lead me other than to a place of my own healing. But now like having this new work opportunity, I can just be having like a really bummy day. And then I go to this high school and meet a bunch of kids who are trying to get themselves to college and pursue their own dreams and passions. And they're so enthusiastic and receptive to adults and mentors and it's just so inspiring to be around young people. Uh, that's so and, good. Yeah, it's been so good so far. It's only my first week. So I think what I'm excited about is just using these skills that I kind of honed in on through my grief in a way to kind of adapt and help other organizations around Chicago specifically, because I do love this city and I want to do everything in my power to make sure just and fair place to live. Isn't it remarkable that your skills and abilities that you learned growing up 
you know, your dad's camera with photography and, and live journal with vulnerability and writing and your punk phase, like all those things came together to support you in your grief. And then your grief, the things you learned in the process of that have come to support you in new endeavors and new experiences and, and a dream job. Like that's, that's incredible. It is. It is. And, you know, I was really fortunate that Jacob and I had life insurance and I was able to take time off work. And I tried my best to acknowledge that in every forum that I can, because that was a huge factor in my own healing and ability to self-reflect. If I had to go back to work or if I had a mortgage to pay or children to raise, then none of that project would have happened. And now it's been a year and some change and I'm able to focus my creativity on something else. But at the beginning it was like, I can't shoot food. Like this means nothing. You know, (laughs) my husband's dead. I don't want to sell a hamburger. (laughs) (laughs) So it's really come full circle where I'm like, okay, I can dabble in a little bit of commercial work. I can do some editorial assignments. I can be out and make small talk with people, especially people who don't know anything about what's happened to me, which was so, so hard at the beginning. Um, And now, like, also, I've made a bit of a reputation for myself in Chicago as being an empathetic and emotionally intelligent person. And that speaks louder to who I am than any photograph I could ever make. Yeah, that's where your work is ultimately going to come from. You know, people hire you because they like working with you more than because they like the end result. You know, like, you've got to have good enough content. But then after that, it's you know, can you connect with human beings and and you have an ability to do that like no other. So that's amazing. Thank you. I have loved this conversation and I want to just keep on talking forever, but I know (laughs) that we cannot because that is not how human beings work nor podcasting works. And so I do want to end by asking you this because I think this is something that we haven't talked about on the show yet. You're an expert on this. And I also know that some people listening might need to hear these words. So I want to ask, what would you say to somebody who's experiencing pressure from others to turn their heartbreaking story into a positive that, you know, pressures to reframe the story or, you know, to, to make things just feel more happy and bright. What would you say to people who are struggling? What would you want them to know? I think it's okay to speak up for yourself when someone makes a comment to you or about your life that sort of leads you in the direction of, isn't there a bright side or at least this, or doesn't that make it less painful? I honestly think people don't know how hurtful that is. And if they care about you and if they truly do want you to be happier or feel lighter, it's okay to encourage them by saying, you know, it really hurts my feelings when you try to find a bright side. I'm just going through a really hard time right now. And it would be a lot easier if you could just listen. I think all of us just need to remember that when someone's venting about something hard that they're going through, they might not want a solution. They might just want a friend. And I'm still learning that too. I'm a pragmatic person and it can be very easy to offer a 
what if you tried this or what if you did that? But having gone through this experience, I think I just want people to feel encouraged that if you are also making an active effort to take care of yourself and you do feel comfortable talking to especially a professional or any kind of counselor, there's no reason to mask your heartbreak for the comfort of other people. That's unfair to you. Anjali is such an incredible human being. She has this powerful way of revealing the ways that sadness, hurt, and anger are inextricably bound up with gratitude, humor, pleasure, and joy. Anjali's story and honesty remind me that it is important never to try and reframe somebody else's story. And remember, when someone is venting about something hard they're going through, we have the opportunity to be mindful that they aren't looking for a solution. Perhaps they just want a friend. Lead with this idea that people want your care more than your advice. To find out more about Anjali and check out her past work, visit her website, anjalipinto.com. And please follow Anjali on social media at Anjali Pinto. She's beyond worth the follow. I've loved following her for years. And for the record, I would totally buy and read her book. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. You'd also love my conversations with the couple Kevin and Blake Walsh, as well as our episode featuring Kelly Haddock's story. Both of them deal with loss and tragedy in a beautiful and profound way. You can find both of these episodes and more than 100 other episodes by searching Sounds Good wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast was created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good, 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 a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio edit and mix the show, and Christy Karen Brock offers production support. You can get lots of hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at Good, Good, Good CO. Oh, and here is some really exciting news. We have our first Good, Good, Good local gathering event coming up on May 2nd. We've been wanting for a while now to take an evening to gather around our tight-knit community that celebrates the good in the world. There's going to be wine and music and a lot of special guests from the Sounds Good podcast community. You've definitely heard them on the show before, and I would love to see you there. But we only have a limited capacity for guest registration. So don't wait until the last minute to sign up. Use the link in our Instagram bio. Again, that's at goodgoodgoodco. Or check out the link in the show notes for this episode. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and remember that there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. Let's keep on sharing our stories. Sound good? 